0: Bertrand Russell once said, Mathematics, rightly viewed, possesses not only truth, but supreme beauty. This is Save vs. Rant.
1: Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the everyman gaming podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about beautiful math. Now, this is kind of weird. What is beautiful math? I don't know. Math is ugly, isn't it, John? No.
0: Math is beautiful. All math is beautiful. Now, when we talk about beautiful math, We're not talking about mathematical beauty, which is a concept within mathematics, where certain formulas and procedures are considered beautiful. E to the I pi plus one equals zero, for example. If you understood that, congratulations on making it through college. Well done. But what we're talking about is mathematics as it pertains to gaming and how that makes games better by working with, not against the idea of how we play games.
1: All right, so this is going to be kind of heady, so let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about proto-math. At the beginning, everyone, when they start playing games, learns basic ideas of math.
0: Yes, all games are math. That is a simple fact of reality, and we all understand certain math at an instinctual level. When I say, for example, that the person with the highest score wins the game, all other things being equal, if you can get one point or three points, you will always choose three points because that's correct.
1: Likewise, in a racing game, if you need to get further down the board, if you can go further, you want to do that one as opposed to going shorter.
0: Now, these things are pretty obvious and everyone understands them well. There are other concepts that we all kind of understand on an instinctual level. For instance, if I have a deck of cards and I pull the Ace of Spades off the top of the deck of cards, you know there's not another Ace of Spades in there. We all understand this, and even though that is a mathematical concept, it's not something that I have to sit you down and explain to you. Similarly, you now know that there's only three aces left in that deck of cards. These are all very simple proto-mathematical concepts that we all get
1: on an instinctual level. A very early game that teaches good mathematical concepts is Yahtzee. You roll the dice, and you're trying to figure out good combinations to get better points. And you start learning the mathematical combinations very, very early on. No one typically has to explain it to you either. If you play a little bit of Yahtzee, the first few times you might flounder some, but
0: eventually you start to get an idea of what your options are when you see certain things come up. If you get a one, two threes, and two fours, you know you have a few choices. You can go for the threes, you can go for the fours, you can go for the one, or you can go for a larger small straight. Or you could go for a full house. All of these are options. These are all things that you can do with that roll. Some of these options are better than others, but circumstances might cause you to make different choices. If you've already gotten your threes, for example, that's off the table already. If you've already gotten your full house, you're not worried about that. If you like to push your luck, you might go for the straight, even if you have other options available to you, or the full house, even if you have other options.
1: Now, the interesting thing is that pushing your luck is actually not in your best interest most of the time. And this brings us to game theory. I always have a hard time explaining this. John, what is game theory?
0: Game theory is a branch of mathematics that explains how we look at situations and what outcomes we expect, what outcomes are good for one party or bad for another party, and how to achieve those outcomes. There are some really common game theory examples. The most common one is called the Prisoner's Dilemma. What, you may ask, is the Prisoner's Dilemma? The Prisoner's Dilemma is a situation where you have two individuals both accused of a crime who are taken in question separately. Each individual has two choices. They can rat out their partner or they can stay quiet. If they rat out their partner, they will receive a reduced sentence, much less than they would have gotten normally. If they choose to remain silent, they will receive a set sentence that is substantially more than if they rat out their partner. However, if both individuals rat out their partner, then they will both go to prison for a very long time because the state doesn't need to cut a deal with them. Alternately, if I choose not to rat out my partner and you rat out your partner, then I'm going to go down the creek for a while and you're basically going to walk now.
1: Which, by the way, John, I'm going to rat you out every single time. Because
0: that's the Nash equilibrium, of course. See, it... (laughs) (laughs) Haha, yeah, Nash equilibrium. In gaming, in the concept of game theory, the Nash equilibrium is the choice that all other things being equal, everyone should make every time. In The Prisoner's Dilemma, the Nash equilibrium is to always defect, that is always rat out your partner. Whereas the best strategy, the one that gives the best situation for everyone, the greatest felicity for all, as they say, is to not rat out your partner and for everyone to just go down for a reasonable amount of time instead of trying to take the easy out.
1: Now, there's a lot of other different game theory problems. There's the perfectly logical pirates. There's the... Actually... Do all game theory problems have weird, funny names?
0: Yeah, pretty much. There's a Perfectly Logical Pirates, there's the Truth Game, there's the Lie Game, there's the Cooperation Game, and there's the Monty Hall problem, which I want to touch on right now because it's
1: a good example of how math can confuse us. And it's a great example of math in games. There was a game show called Let's Make a Deal, hosted by Monty Hall. In it, a contestant would be offered a choice of three doors. Behind two of the doors were goats. They actually wouldn't get the goat. It wouldn't be any actual value. It would just be, oh, you lost. But behind one of the doors, there would be a car, some sort of boat, a prize, a vacation, something really, really good that they wanted. Now, they were given... The option of one of three doors without knowing what's behind it. Then, Monty Hall would go, Well, I'll open this door and reveal a goat. Now, do you want to change your mind? So, if I choose door number one,
0: Monty would say,
1: Well, let's see what's behind door number two. It's the goat. So, do you want to change your choice? Well, that really shouldn't change my idea. I mean, now I have a 50/50. I had 50/50 shot now, right? No. Actually, if you change your choice, you have a
0: 2 in 3 chance of winning, and if you don't change your choice, you have a 1 in 3 chance of winning. Uh See, this is one of those things where math can confuse you. The Monty Hall problem has confounded individuals much smarter and more mathematically inclined than I, and it's because you can get hung up on the details really easily. What you need to remember about the Monty Hall problem is it can be boiled down to a simple explanation. When you choose your door, he is opening every door that has a goat that is not the door you chose. Which means that if you chose a goat originally the only door that isn't open is the prize
1: i'm still a little confused i think i've got a better way of explaining this if there's ten doors and behind nine of the doors there's a goat behind one of the doors there's a car you choose door number one monty hall would then open up doors two three four six seven eight nine and ten and go do you want to change your choice now now remember if you chose a goat originally
0: and you had a 9 in 10 chance of doing so, switching your choice wins you the game. You get what you want. The only time switching your choice loses is if you got the right choice the first time. So you have a 9 in 10 chance of having the right choice when you switch. That's really good.
1: That's amazingly good. And the only reason that the Monty Hall problem is even a problem at all is because it reduced it to the smallest number that the problem uh, works at. Let's, uh, let, let's talk about uh, other problems. The most common example of math in our lives is actually at the casino. John and I both independently work at a casino. Like, we came to the idea of working at the casino differently from one another.
0: Yeah, completely separate. We knew each other, and then it just so happened we both ended up working
1: at a casino. Amazing. The math at casinos is pure. It's wonderfully pure. It's like Colombian cocaine pure, like just so much amazing
0: math. It really is super tight. Uh, one great example of this is actually my favorite casino game, Roulette. In Roulette, you have a wheel with 38 spots on it, the numbers 1 through 36, and then a 0 and a zero-zero. 0. Now, all of the bets are set up so that they are mathematically fair if the wheel only had 36 spots on it. Which means that if you do a straight-up bet on one number, you get a 1 to 35 payoff. You get 35 plus your original bet back. If, however, you bet on a split bet, which would be two numbers... You get your original wager back, and you get an additional 17 units. So if you wagered $1, you get your dollar back in $17. Now, it's hard for people to wrap their mind around this, but every bet on the roulette wheel, with the exception of the five-way bet, which is dumb and shouldn't exist, but every other bet on the roulette wheel is perfectly fair as far as the bets go.
1: So, So what if I have a column, you know, the whole strip of 12 numbers?
0: A perfectly fair bet. Exactly the same house edge as every other bet on the roulette wheel.
1: So the, the street, the double street, the splits, the corners, the oh. snake, all of it,
0: all of it. Every single bet on the roulette wheel is equivalent. And the reason for that is you have to think of it as losing your original wager when you place it. When you place that wager, that money's gone. You get it back when you win, which is why betting two $5 bets on a single number is different and yet similar to betting $10 on a split bet. Essentially, you get the same amount of money back ultimately for the same investment.
1: Now, another casino game that actually hides its math so wonderfully is Baccarat. I've heard so many people say, oh, it's just a 50-50 shot. No, no, it is not. Actually, the banker bet has a better chance of winning than the player bet, which is why there's a 5% commission on it. It's actually a substantially larger
0: margin because of the way the banker's third card rule works. The chance of the banker bet winning actually overstrips that 5% vigorish that you have to pay on it, which means that the banker bet is actually the better bet. Vigorous? Not. Now I want black licorice. Thanks, John. <laughs> so, another game which everyone knows has been analyzed to death is Blackjack. That is the casino game for analysis.
1: Blackjack has been analyzed so well that MIT mathematicians have figured out the best possible plays on every single combination of cards. Your two first cards plus the dealer's card. Your four cards plus the dealer's card. Whatever combination, they have figured out what the proper play is. And because of the way math works, a lot of times you're
0: not going to like it.
1: Most of the time, you hit a 16 against a 10. Sometimes you hit it extra hard.
0: Ultimately, a lot of the choices don't make sense until you do mathematical analysis. But then, again, everyone kind of has an idea of how blackjack should be played. I mean, you don't really have to explain to someone, for example, that they should hit a six. There's no risk whatsoever to hitting a six, and it's not obviously doubleable because you're not gonna get a good number by hitting a six. So hitting a six is obvious. No one needs to explain that to you, and it's another way that mathematics can be very intuitive while at the same time being very unintuitive, When you have that 16 against a 10, you really don't want to hit it because your chance of busting is so high.
1: Blackjack is another great game because it feeds into this primal idea that we have of big numbers are better. Closest to 21 without going over wins. It's so wonderful. But you also get these weird little facets of the game that mean absolutely nothing. John, did you know that the most common hand in blackjack is 20?
0: Hmm. That's really interesting. What is
1: that good for? Absolutely nothing. The simple fact of the matter is, knowing that the most common hand in blackjack is 20 does you no good. The best thing that you can do to play blackjack is get a basic strategy card and play exactly what it says. No matter what.
0: Because even the tiny edge that you get on some of the more obscure plays, you know, not splitting nines against a 7, or doubling a soft 18 against a 6... All of these things are not obvious and require a lot of mathematical explanation as to why they work. But in the end, getting that tiny edge is always going to be better because that's how numbers work. And that's kind of beautiful, actually. These obscure, strange ways that mathematics comes together to make these games playable in ways that are a little bit counterintuitive,
1: that make us think about what we're doing and the choices we make in these games. Which kind of leads us to the next part. People doing bad math. So, John, what's the average roll of a die six? Mm, That'd be three, isn't it? Nope, it's 3.5.
0: There's no 3.5 on a d6.
1: I know, but three and four are equally likely to come up. Likewise, five and two are equally likely to come up. Six and one are equally likely to come up. If we average those all out, comes to 3.5. Which is very interesting and not necessarily intuitive. When you're rolling one six-sided die, it actually doesn't matter too much if you think that it's 3 or 3.5. What it does matter is when you're rolling 10 6-sided dice. Hey John, what are you most likely to roll on 10 6 sided dice?
0: Um well, if we go with the 3, then you might think 30, but the actual answer is 35.
1: And that extra 5 points of damage is going to kill a troll, I guarantee it. Bad math comes really in two varieties. People doing math quickly and doing it wrong, such as thinking that the average of a die six is three, not 3.5. And then there's people just not understanding the math. What's the likelihood of rolling a 20 on a d20? 5%. Exactly. Do you know how long it took me to find that out? I was in middle school when I started playing D&D. I didn't know what 5% of a D20 was. And it's because of this that you get some people who like to fudge the numbers when they play games. The cheaters. The people that skew the averages in their favor. The big problem with cheating,
0: other than the fact that it's an antisocial behavior that tends to break down the trust that is inherent in playing games with people, just throwing that out there, is that it often makes good math bad and bad math worse. And to a large degree, that can make games unplayable, which is a big reason that when you play a game with a new rule or a house rule, you need to understand why the rules work the way they did in the first place. And that's where an intuitive understanding of math might lead you astray.
1: One of the most common problems I see new DMs doing in d and is adding in the super critical rule. The, oh, you just rolled a critical roll again. If you roll a 20, it's an auto-kill. Now, this sounds really
0: cool on paper. Like, if I say to you, hey, if you roll another 20, you can kill the dragon in one hit. Isn't that f***ing amazing? That's so cool. It really is, but there's a number of pitfalls to that that might not be readily apparent, and that's where you need to get into the habit of thinking a little more deeply with your mathematics when you do these things. Now, what, Jeremy, is the problem with having double criticals?
1: The problem is that any one player character is going to suffer more attack rolls than any one NPC, which means they're going to suffer more criticals and more chances to be automatically killed.
0: Ultimately, any time you're reducing the consistency of the game, Anytime you're making things more random, more arbitrary, you are favoring characters who only show up for a short time or make an appearance solely to die. Those characters are now going to have a better chance of doing something spectacular in their very short time on the stage or being killed by a critical and not really caring because they're not a persistent character. If you have 16 goblins attacking the player characters, the chances get greater and greater with each attack that one of those goblins is going to hit on that double critical and just outright kill one. One of the player characters.
1: Which, if you're all alright with completely arbitrary death, fine. Make sure that all of your players are. I personally want my character to stay around and die against the big boss. I don't want to be taken out by a random goblin. I want to be taken out by that red dragon over there.
0: I want there to be a risk that I'll be taken out by that random goblin, but I don't want that risk to be, and then the goblin magically does all of my damage in a single hit. I want that risk to be more akin to, I've been hit several times by this goblin, I really need to start reeling it in trying to not get hit more because I can't sustain much more damage. When you create a large arbitrary jump like that, you are favoring... The characters who don't have to roll frequently or who don't care about their characters, where the character does not really matter. If that's the theme of your game, absolutely go for it, but know the ramifications of that. And that's where this idea of seeing the beauty in math helps us to understand and enjoy our games. Ultimately, what you need to understand is if you think you don't like math, you just don't like the presentation of it. Games give you different presentations for their mathematics. Every game is math. Whatever games you enjoy, they're mathematical. Even kinetic games just add physics to the math, which makes it more complicated. If you're flicking pieces around or knocking tiddlywinks, you're still making a lot of mathematical decisions. They're just a different sort. We are focused right now on games that use math as the principle of the gameplay rather than relying on physics or physical dexterity for the players.
1: I know a lot of people don't like Dungeons and Dragons because of the sheer volume of math that's involved. There's a lot of numbers on this sheet and they just say, okay, add your strength plus your dex minus this person's armor class plus the plus three of this weapon minus one die six. I, I actually don't know what game I'm talking about at this point, but they get overwhelmed with all that math. But there's some really good mathematically sound, mathematically beautiful games that hide the math really well. Five Tribes is a great example.
0: No, five Tribes. It's uh, a real quick summary of Five Tribes. Is It's basically 3D Mancala. You're picking up meeple and moving them around a board by placing them in each space and ultimately trying to get the right meeple. Now, every meeple has a different ability that gives you different things. You're claiming different spots on the board. There are a lot of options in the game, and the different options give you different outcomes and also seal off other outcomes to you in ways that take a lot of thinking and strategizing but don't feel like you're just running numbers. You don't sit there and say well I have 14 and this is going to give me 6 which will bring me to 20 and then minus 3 and then this and that. You end up finding yourself saying things like if I do this I'm not going to be able to grab the assassins next turn but at least the other player won't be able to grab the assassins and then I can do this move which will set me up if the player does this and you find yourself branching off into all these directions
1: without ever explaining thinking of numbers at the beginning of the game there's always some really good play but everyone jumps on that so there's another really good play so the next player jumps on that and there are these big plays that just happen and happen and happen and it's about the third or fourth turn that the game really starts kicking in okay now there's five or six equally likely plays now there's all these different paths to go down that's what makes five tribes so wonderfully beautiful Another game is Seven Wonders. Seven Wonders is a card drafting game. And as you go along, you're constructing a a city, constructing a wonder in front of yourself that adds together to add points. You're adding science, which multiplies itself. You're adding war, which takes points away from the people next to you. You're building guilds, which do all sorts of weird things. It's a really nifty little game that all is founded on this strong mathematical core. An interesting thing about Seven Wonders is that I've played it two different
0: ways. I've played it where I was trying to absolutely maximize my value by thinking of the likely outcome of every single move, balancing that against what my opponents were doing, considering my options, trying to bring things out, looking at the numbers, saying, okay, well, if I do this and I get the technology card next turn, I'm going to be able to get another eight points, which will bring me up to this. And I just sat there and gamed the game and gamed the game and ended up coming in third or fourth and other times, I just say, oh, I'm going to go for what feels cool this time. I'm going to, oh, like, hey, I'm going to go to the statue. That'll open me up to some other options later. I'll get up to the Pantheon. I'll get this. I'll get that. I'll be able to do this. These will open new options to me. And when I didn't think about the numbers as much, I've come out ahead. And I consider myself a person who's actually really good with numbers. So it's interesting that when I started playing intuitively, I found myself coming up with sometimes better outcomes. And war is a sucker bet.
1: So we're talking about beautiful math here. We talked about five tribes that had a number in it. Talked about seven wonders. So I think the most obvious one to go to is Ticket to Ride. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Okay, but Ticket to Ride. That is actually a really good example because Ticket to Ride
0: has a lot of math in it. And you're not going to look at numbers a lot throughout the game. Sure, you see the value of your ticket. But ultimately, you say, well, that's how much I get if I get it. That's how much I lose if I don't. So I'm going to prioritize this ticket more than this ticket that costs less, which on its surface seems fairly simple, but you can get into some really advanced strategies in Ticket to Ride, and a lot of them don't hinge on obvious number
1: plays. The thing I like about Ticket to Ride is it builds on that basic proto-math idea of bigger numbers are better. Well, I have this one really long route that one I want to go for. Wait, this, this route plus this route equals a bigger number than the big route. 12 plus 16 is better than 20, and it speaks to a very deep primal level for me.
0: You, yeah, you can find yourself in a situation where you acknowledge that big rock is good rock, but sometimes two small rocks is better rock. You know, it just, it does speak to you in a way. Um, on top of that, if you do some deep mathematical analysis of the game, and of course, because the internet exists, this has been done, you find that sometimes unintuitive moves are some of the best moves. Serious ticket ride players will often squabble for the first couple of turns over a lot of the short routes because it changes the dynamic of the game, because it makes it hard to accomplish the long tickets in the game. A lot of players don't like this, and you'll hardly ever see a tickets ride game online where somebody isn't saying no blocking as one of their rules for the game. it's because... Actually, blocking doesn't change the game in a way that makes it truly unfun. I think a game of Ticket to Ride where everyone is cutthroat and blocking each other is really interesting. It just doesn't speak to the same primal area because a lot of the time when you have a blocking game, you're squabbling over small point values and squabbling over not losing points rather than trying to get big scores. And bigger is better. Everybody likes getting a big number.
1: And that actually brings us to probably the most simple thing that we have to say. If you don't believe that math is beautiful, why is it that doing a 1,000 points of damage to a boss who has 10,000 hit points feels so much better, is so much more visceral than doing 10 points of damage to a boss with a 100 hit points? Why is it that in board games, if I do 1 point of damage to a boss who has 10 hit points, I feel like I'm doing next to nothing?
0: All of them are equivalent, but to some degree, we all gravitate toward those big numbers, that big, exciting payout. And in a sense, isn't that us all acknowledging that math is beautiful to some degree, that these big ideas and these big notions appeal to us on a primal level? We find ourselves looking at these numbers that are massive and powerful, and they speak to us. And that's how math can be beautiful, is in things like big numbers, subtle changes, little numbers, little secrets, things that make us feel clever, powerful, and above all, like good game
1: players. I think that's about all we have to say about beautiful math. When we talk about beautiful math in the other episodes, we're talking about this core concept, about how adding one plus one to equal two is fun, how adding two plus two to equal four is fun, how having four cards over here that add up to 15 is so much more cool than having the one card out there that equals 12 it's this wonderful great visceral feeling so what are we going to talk about next time john well we've
0: talked about the aesthetics of crunch right now the crunchy aspects of games let's talk about the fluff of games we're talking about things like lore narrative storytelling the presentation. So our next topic of conversation is going to be the importance of lore and why presentation in games is often just as important as the actual crunch and meat of how the rules of the game work.
1: All right. So this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you guys very much for listening. Penn Gillette once said, Las Vegas is a city founded on gloriously Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at savevsrant.com, or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.